Will you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. Through Christ Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I uh, came over to bring some bulletins this morning and to pray with the choir, and they looked at the sermon title and said, oh, no sermon today, because there are no words. And I said, just because there are no words, it doesn't mean there won't be a sermon. <laughs> Judy and I were invited to go uh, to a wedding of a colleague of mine. She had been a United Methodist pastor for a number of years already. She met and fell in love with a Quaker gentleman. He was uh, a minister in their tradition. And I don't know how much you know about the Friends tradition or the Quaker tradition, but in the in the beginning, they used to just sit around together, nobody making a sound until the Spirit moved. And then the testimonies and the words from Scripture and the thoughts would be shared. And so they decided that they would try to bring together the best of the Methodist and the Quaker traditions in this wedding. One of the other peculiarities about the Quaker tradition is that they don't believe that a minister can seal the deal. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the marriage holy. This caused a lot of problems in the early colonial days because uh, you needed somebody's signature on the wedding certificate. So what they came to do was have everybody in the entire parish or wherever come who was a witness to the wedding and sign as as a witness to the wedding, so that if anybody claimed the wedding was not legitimate, the constable would have to arrest the whole valley uh, at the same time. So sure enough, we didn't just sign a guest book, we signed their marriage certificate as we came in and we sat down. And then the bride and the groom got up and they came and they sat in two chairs facing each other near the front of the room. There was nobody wearing clothes like this. Uh, there were at least... 15 or 20 other clergy in the room who were of the United Methodist persuasion, any one of whom would have been thrilled and honored and humbled to have been the celebrant at this wedding. And they were all sitting there in handcuffs because we were waiting on the Spirit. And the Quakers were perfectly at peace with this. But the Methodists were as fidgety as you could possibly imagine. It was amazing. And then finally, when we all began to think, this, this plane's going to hit the trees at the end of the runway. It's never going to get off the ground. Finally, the spirit began to move. And somebody got up and shared a little fragment of a song that brought a guitar with them. And somebody else said something else and somebody else. And then the person just in front of Judy stood up and had a few words to say. And then the person next to them stood up and had a few things to say. And I was watching this person thinking, oh dear God, the Spirit's coming right down the row and I'm going to be next. <laughs> it was awful. It was wonderful. And after a good amount of time and sharing, as a deep, quiet peace began to come over the place, the bride and groom stood up, faced each other, 
held hands, he said the vows that he had given. And she said, I take you to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until we are parted by death. This is my solemn vow. And you could see every single clergy in the room just go, oh, we're home. You, the Holy Spirit is such a generous lover of all people. I don't know any other way to say it. But if we wait long enough and if we truly wait on the Lord, the Holy Spirit will make sure that every single one has been filled and blessed to their fullest capacity. We read the scriptures about a time when these people were following Jesus, but we live as we read these scriptures in the illuminating light of the Holy Spirit of God. And that's important to keep in mind. All the clues are there from Mark, the storyteller. They went up to a high mountain because the highest mountains were the places that were closest to God in those days. Jesus was transfigured before them. He appeared to them. We have language from both Greek tradition and from the Hebrew tradition of, of appearing and being transfigured. And he suddenly shone with a dazzling light and his clothes were made whiter than any launderer on earth could make them. Mark is using phrases like fullers and, and uh, the dazzling light of the sun because Mark is limited by the language that we use. For in truth, there are no words for what happened on that mountaintop to, in the presence of Peter and James and John. Our Gospels are filled with stories of Jesus doing marvelous deeds, of speaking words of wisdom, of speaking words of reproach, of speaking words of affirmation, of speaking words of forgiveness. He walks on water. He welcomes children. He heals he rubs some mud in the blind eyes, in the eyes of a blind man, and the man is made well. Jesus is activistic. He is certain about his mission. He has purpose. But in this passage, Jesus doesn't do anything. It sits right smack dab in the very center of the Gospel of Mark, halfway from the beginning to the end. And they're sitting on a mountaintop, and Jesus is transfigured. He is changed. The Christ who makes our life in this world comfortable is suddenly revealed as the Christ of the world that is to come. The resplendent glory of the resurrected Jesus is shown to the three who followed them up the mountain. And in their terror, in their fear, in the holy awe of that moment, in that moment when you don't know what else to say, what does Peter do? But he opens his mouth. It's the very moment for silence. But Peter can't help himself. And truth be told, neither can you or I. We want to do something we want to make something. We want to build something. When Jacob had that incredible dream, 
And he saw angels flying up and down the ladder that goes to heaven. He got up in the next morning and he found every big rock he could find and he made a pile of rocks there. Last weekend, I was with the Lyft board of directors in Catalina. One of the young men who was with us has a family now and his oldest son and I went for a long walk. He wanted to talk about ministry matters and we walked all the way out along a dirt road uh, to the edge of Catalina Harbor, which faces the open sea. It's a wild windswept stretch of coastland with rocks everywhere and all up and down the coast. All up and down that coastline were piles of rocks, flat stones smoothed by the sea that people had gathered and stuck up on top of each other. Little monuments and testaments to the inexpressible glory of God's creation. Pagans and Buddhists and Christians and Jews alike walk out there and they are gobsmacked by what they see the rugged California coast as it appeared a thousand years ago. And in testimony to everything that's churning inside them, they make a pile of stones or they make a pile of rocks. In the time of Jesus, did you know that it had come to be, uh, that they had come to believe that of the three great pilgrim festivals, festival of Passover, the festival of weeks, and the feast of booths, Because the Feast of Booths was the culmination or the capstone of the year, that big, wonderful moment when they would celebrate the joy of the law at the end and people would walk around the altar carrying large branches and singing hallelujahs to God and pouring out water libations. The Jewish Festival of Booths had come to be associated. This is the moment at the culmination of the year before the new year begins. This is when Messiah will come. And that's important to know. Because even though it was the season right before Passover, Peter was thrown off by what he saw that the first thing he blurts out is, God, it's good for us to be here, Jesus. So let me build three booths for you. Just like during the festival of booths. Tabernacles. We'll put one up for Moses and one for you and one for Elijah. And that's when God intervened said, Peter, enough with the building already. Enough with the doing. Enough with the busyness. I'm going to show you what I'm doing now. Church, enough with the busyness. Enough with the piling up of the stones. Enough with the building of the booths. Enough with all these things that we do to try to impress the Almighty God. This is a day to stop and say, let us listen to what God is doing. Let us stand in awe and look upon the Son of God. I love the language of what comes next. This is my son. Not this is my Messiah, not this is my savior, not this is my politician, not this is my sports hero, not this is my functionary, this is not my architect or my builder or my 
mathematician or my teacher or anything else. Jesus is not in this moment revealed to the disciples as anything other than one who is the Son of God. And he's revealed for the express purpose of God saying, I love him. I love him. I love him. Every one of us who has raised a child knows what God is feeling in that moment. Just bust the buttons. Just bust the buttons a little bit. You don't need to do anything to deserve that kind of love when you're somebody's beloved child. You just are there. And Jesus is there. Jesus didn't say Shazam and transfigure himself. It's not like the green lantern who can just snap his hands and turn green all of a sudden. By the way, the green lantern is a very cool hero. But Jesus doesn't do this to himself. No, God parts the way. And the light of God is shined upon him. Because everything that's about to happen to him as he comes to Jerusalem and he goes through all of that which the Son of Man must endure in this world, everything like that is going to cloud their vision a little bit and God has to show them ahead of time just a glimpse of what is to come. As God from time to time has to show us a glimpse of what is to come. I was sitting the other day looking at the mountains. It was a super clear day and... I'm so grateful for the, the mountains we have around us here in Southern California. And all of a sudden, way up near the top of the mountain, this little speck of light began to appear. Just out of nowhere. The sun was setting in the west, and somebody's window on their cabin was turned at just the right angle to light up like a brilliant flash of light on the top of the mountain. And a moment later, it was gone. And so it was for the disciples. A brilliant moment in which they saw Jesus in his full and resplendent glory with all of the law and the prophets standing on either side of him. Elijah, the one who demanded fidelity to Yahweh again and again and again, and who was so obsessed with the purity of God's people that he once incinerated 300 and some odd prophets of Baal for their infidelities. You hear Elijah's descendants in the church all the time. If they can't muster up and make right and do it God's way, then get rid of them. Just kick them out. And on the other side, Moses, who spent 40 years in the wilderness interceding for every last Hebrew man, woman, and child. Can't leave any of them behind. You can't leave any of them behind. You can't kick people out. The church has to be filled with love. The church has to be a welcoming place. I don't care what the standards are. Everybody needs to be welcomed here. For centuries, the prophets and the lawgiver have been arguing with each other. Moses and Elijah, wait, wait, we got to pick these up. And Elijah says, they can catch the next bus. This, this bus is, is leaving. And standing right between them, Right between them now is Jesus. Who says to the church the most challenging words that any generation can ever have known. 
you got to find a way to keep both Moses and Elijah sitting in the same room. You can't get rid of either. And you only do that by stopping the sermon and listening in awe to who God really is. An entity that is so filled with love, we have no words for it. You have glimpsed it from time to time in your life. Standing at the rim of the Grand Canyon, peering into a starlit night, holding the next generation of your family in your hands, watching the sunset in the Pacific, watching your next door neighbor's child hit the winning home run and seeing the tears in your neighbor's eyes. You have glimpsed it from time to time. It's love. It's woven into the fabric of our world. It's the only thing worth celebrating in this world. And like light shined through a prism, all of that love becomes focused in the person of Jesus. Now, as kids, we were little demoniacs, and we took that light and we tried to burn the anthill. But as adults, we have learned that that light can provide warmth, heat, Love. Love for everyone. When is the last time you were able to be in awe of how incredibly powerful God's love is for you? You realize that his love has transcended all of your life's circumstances, all of them. There isn't a moment in anything that you've experienced that wasn't undergirded by his steadfast love and overarched by his illuminating warmth and light. So much does he love you. Be in awe of it today. For we serve a very generous lover. And as much as he says of his own son, this is my son, but listen to him, he also says of you, and I love you too. And I love you too. A lot of words flying around the world today. You can speak them, write them, email them, tweet them. You can leave them on a voicemail. The thing that makes the most sense of all on a day like this is to say not so much with the words today. Here is Jesus. Listen to him. Amen.